This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by CBT Nuggets and Lamigo. On this episode, I chat with Patrick Strzelek about building a banking platform with Serverless. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 105. everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and this is Serverless Chats. Today, I'm joined by Patrick Strazelik. Hey, Patrick, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. So you are uh, a lead developer at North One. So I'd love it if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, what North One does. Yeah, totally. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a lead developer here at North One. Um, I've been sort of focusing on uh, building out our GraphQL gateway here, as well as some of our serverless microservices. Um, and yeah, so what North One does, we are a banking experience for small businesses. Um, so effectively, we are a deposit account with many integrations that act almost like an operating system for uh, small businesses. So basically, we we choose the best partners we can to do things like check deposits, um, you know, just do regular transactions you would do, uh, as well as any kind of insights and, you know, the use cases will grow. Um, I'd like to, to call us sort of a very tailored banking experience for small businesses. Very nice. And the thing that is fascinating, I think, about this is that you have just like completely embraced serverless, right? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, we, we started off early on um, with this this vision of being fully event-driven. And, you know, we started off with uh, a monolith, um, sort of like a Py- Python Django big monolith. And we've been experimenting with serverless all the way through. And uh, somewhere along the journey, we decided this is a tool for us. And it just totally made sense on the business side, on the tech side. Um, yeah, it's, it's just been, um, it's been absolutely great. So let's talk about that because this is one of those things where I think you get a business and I mean, a business that's in, you know, that's a banking platform, right? So, I mean, you're, you're here, you're handling some serious uh, transactions here. You've got, um, you know, a lot of transactions that are going through and, and you totally embrace this. And I'd love to kind of have you take the, the listeners through, you know, why you, why you thought it was a good idea. Like what were the business cases for it? And then we can talk a little bit about, you know, the adoption process. Um, and then I know there's a whole bunch of stuff that you did with event driven stuff, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, and then we can probably follow up with maybe a couple of challenges and some of the issues you sort of face. So, so why don't we start there? Let's start like who who in your organization? Because I am always fascinated to know, um, you know, if uh, if somebody is like in your organization says, "Hey, uh, we absolutely need to do serverless," and just starts beating that drum. So, what was sort of that business and technical case that that made your organization sort of swallow that pill? Yeah, totally. So, I think just at a high level, um, we're a user experience company. Like, we want to make sure we offer small businesses the best banking experience possible. So, we don't want to spend a lot of time. Um, on, on operations and, you know, trying to, and, and also reliability is incredibly important. So um, if we can offload that burden and move faster, that, that's what we need to do. Um, and so when we're talking about who's beating that drum, I would, I would say our VP, Blake, really early on um, seemed to, to see serverless as this, this amazing fit. Um, so I, I joined about three years ago today. So I, I guess this is my, my anniversary. 
um, at the company and we were just deciding what to build. And uh, at the time there was a lot of architecture diagrams and you know, Blake sort of hypothesized that, that serverless was a great fit. Um, we had a lot of versions of the world, some with Apache Kafka and a bunch of you know, um, microservices going through there. Um, there's other versions with, with serverless um, in the mix and, and some of the tooling around that. Um, and um, this other hypothesis that maybe we want you know, GraphQL gateway in the middle of there. And so it was one of those things that we wanted to sort of test our hypothesis um, as right. we go. And that, and that kind of ties into um you know this this innovation velocity that service um that that serverless allows for so um it's it's very cheap to put a new piece of infrastructure up in serverless i mean just the other day we wanted to test uh, kinesis for an event streaming use case and that was just you know a half an hour to set up that that config and you could put it live in production right. and test it out which is which is completely awesome and so i think like that innovation velocity was sort of the, the hypothesis we could just try things out really quickly. They don't cost much at all. Uh, you only pay for what you use for the most part. Um, and right. so we were able to sort of try that out um, as well as reliability. So a AWS um, really does a good job of making sure everything's available all the time. Um, something that maybe a young startup isn't ready to take on. Um, and so, yeah, so so when I joined the company, Blake kind of proposed like, okay, let's let's try out, you know, GraphQL as, as a gateway, as a concept, build me a prototype. Um, and, and in that prototype, there was a really good opportunity to try serverless. They, they just, um, Apollo server launched the serverless package that was just super easy to deploy. Um, like it was a complete no brainer. Uh, we tried it out, we built the case. And so we just started with this, um, GraphQL gateway running on, on our, on serverless. Um, so AWS Lambda, and, uh, it's kind of funny cause, um, at first it's like, okay, we're just trying this out in development. Nobody's going to be hitting our services. Um, right. it was still a year out from when we were going into production. And, um, but like once we went to prod this, this Lambda is hot all the time <laughs> there, um, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> I think like that, the cost case kind of breaks down there cause you're running this thing, thing forever, but it was right. this GraphQL server in front of our, um, Python Django monolith with this vision of event-driven microservices, um, which just fit well for banking. Um, if you just think about the banking world, everything is pretty much eventually consistent. Just that's right. the way the systems are designed. You send out a transaction, it doesn't settle for a while. And so it was, we were always going to do event-driven, but when you're starting out with a team of three developers, you're not going to build this whole microservices environment and, right. and everything. And so, um, yeah, we started with that monolith with the GraphQL gateway in front, which, which scaled pretty nicely because we were able to sort of, even today, we have the same GraphQL gateway. We just changed the, the services backing it, which was, right. which was really right. sweet. Um, and so, um, yeah, so like the, the adoption process was like, let's try it out. Um, we tried it out with, with GraphQL first. And then as we were heading into launch, we had this monolith that we needed to manage. Um, and I mean, man managing AWS resources, I mean, it's easier than, you know, back in the day when you're, you're managing your own uh, virtual machines and stuff, but it's still right. not great. Um, and right. we, we didn't have a lot of time. And there's a lot of last minute changes we need to make. So a big refactor to our scheduling transactions functions kind of kind of happened um, right before launch. And so that was like a, an amazing serverless use case. I think that was our second one um, yeah. where we're like, okay, we need to get this live really quickly. And it was, we created this worker form and pattern really quickly as, as, a, as a test 
with serverless and, and it worked beautifully. Uh, we also had another use case come up, which was um, just a simple phone scheduling service. We just wrapped mm -hmm. an API um, and uh, just exposed some endpoints, but it was just a lot easier to do with serverless. You just threw it off to two developers, figure out right. <laughs> how you do it, and it was ready to be live. Um, yeah, and so, then, so that so I, I'm starting to interrupt you, but I I, I kind of want to get to this point because you're talking about standing up infrastructure using infrastructure's code or the service the yeah. tools you're using. I mean, how many developers were working on this thing? How like, many? I think at the time, like maybe four four developers on on backend functionality before launch, like when we were just starting out. Right. But you're building, I mean, you're building a banking platform here, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I, this is pretty sophisticated. So, I, I mean, I can imagine another business case for serverless is just the sense that we don't have to hire an operations team. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we were well through launch. Like, I, I think it would have been, you know, a couple months where we were live, where we, where we hired our first DevOps engineer. Right. Um, which, which is incredible. I mean, our VP took took a lot of that too. Like, I'm, I'm sure he had his hands a little more dirty than, than he'd like early on. But um, yeah, it was just amazing. We were able to to manage all that infrastructure and, and scale was never a concern. I mean, in right. your early stages, maybe it shouldn't be just yet. But yeah, um, yeah, it was just really, really easy. So, so now, so now you, you started with like four. And I think, what are you, what are you now? Like somewhere around 25 developers, somewhere in that space now? Yeah, so uh, about 25 developers now. We're growing really fast. Um, so we doubled this year during COVID, which is just crazy to think about. Um, and uh, somehow have been uh, have been scaling somewhat smoothly, at least in terms of like just being able to output as a dev team remote. Um, and we'll probably double again this year. So um, <laughs> this is maybe where I shamelessly plug that that we're hiring, and we always are. And um, you know, you could visit northone.com um, and just check out the careers page or, or just hit me up for a warm intro. But um, yeah, um, like it, it's been it's been crazy. And, and that's that's like one of the things that serverless has helped with us, too. Um, we haven't had this, um, you know, scaling bottleneck, which is an operations team. Um, right. You know, so we don't need to hire X operations people for for a certain number of developers um, and, and onboarding has been easier. Um, there was one example of uh, during like a major project, we, we hired a developer. Um, he was new to serverless, but just a very experienced developer. And he had a production service, production ready serverless service ready in a month, which was wow. like in, just an insane ramp up time. Um, that, you know, I haven't seen that very often and no, he didn't have to talk to any of our operation staff. Um, and we, we've already used serverless long enough that we had sort of all of our presets and boilerplates ready and, and right. permissions kind of locked down. So it's just super easy, super empowering just for him to be able to just play around with the different services. Because um, we, we hit that point where we've invested enough that every developer, um, when they when they open a branch, that branch deploys it as, as its own stage, which has all of the services, uh, okay. AWS, infrastructure deployed. So you might have, you know, a PR open that, you know, launches um, like an instance of, of Kinesis and, you know, five SQSQs and, you know, 10 lambdas and, and a bunch of other things, um, you know, and, and then tear down almost immediately. And, and the cost isn't something we really worry about. Uh, so yeah, the, the, the innovation velocity there has been really, really good. Um, and just being able to try things out. Uh, so, so if you're thinking about 
something like Kinesis, where it, it's sort of like a Kafka, that's my understanding. Um, and if you think about the organizational buy-in you need for something like Kafka, uh, because you need to support it, come up with opinions and all right. this other stuff, um, you'll spend weeks trying it out. But for one of our developers, it's like, this This seems great. We're streaming uh, events. We want this to be real time. Um, let's just try it out. And this is for our analytics use case. And you know, it's live in production now. There's, it, it seems to be doing the thing and, and we're, we're yeah. testing out that use case. And there isn't that, that roadblock. Um, and you know, you could always switch off to a different um, design if you want. Um, so yeah, uh, the, the experimentation piece there has been awesome. Like we've, we've changed, you know, during major projects, we've changed the way we've thought about our resources um, a few times and, and in the end it, it works out. And, and often it is, is about resiliency. It's just right. jamming cues into places we didn't think about <laughs> um, in the first place, but yeah, it's been awesome. But so, so I'm curious with that though. So with 25 developers, um, I mean, you know, Kinesis for the most part works pretty well, but you do have to watch those iterator ages and make sure that they're not, you know, backing up or that you're losing events. Um, if they get, you know, you know, if they uh, get flooded or whatever, and also sticking queues everywhere sounds like a really good idea. And I'm a big <laughs> fan of that, but it also, that means there's a lot of queues you have to manage and watch yeah. and set alarms on and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just curious. I mean, then you also talked about a, a pretty, what sounds like a pretty great CICD process to spin up new branches and things like that. So there's a lot of DevOpsy ops work that is still there. Mm -hmm. um, and so how are you handling that now? Do you have dedicated ops people or do you, or do you just have your developers kind of looking after that piece of it? Yeah, I'd say we have a very spirited group of developers <laughs> who are inspired. Um, so yeah, uh, we, we do a lot of, um, of our code sharing via internal packages. Um, so a few of our, uh, our developers just um, figured out some of our patterns that we need, whether it's like CI or, or how we structure our event stores or um, you know how we do our queue subscriptions. And so we manage these internal packages. This this won't scale well, by the way. Um, this is just <laughs> us being inspired and you know trying to um, reduce some of this burden. So so it is interesting. Right. Like I've, I've listened to this podcast and a few others, and this this idea of uh, like infrastructure as code being part of every developer's toolbox. Um, it's it's starting to really resonate with our team. Um, you know in in our migration or, or our, our switch shift to full, I'd say doing serverless properly, um, mm -hmm. we've we've learned to really think in it, like think in terms of infrastructure and in our creating solutions. So yep. not saying we're doing serverless the right way now, but we certainly did it the wrong way in the past, or we've had this, um, we would spin up you know, a bunch of API gateways that would talk to each other. A lot of REST right. calls going around the spider right. web of communication. Um, also, I'll call these monster monster lambdas that you know have a whole procedure list right. um, that they need to get through and a lot of points of failure. And so, when we were thinking about the way we're going to do, do lambda now, uh, we we try to keep one lambda doing one thing, and then there's pieces of infrastructure stitching that together. Yeah. So. Uh, event bridge between domain boundaries, SQS um, for, for commands where we can instead of using API gateway. Um, yeah, and, and I, I think that that sort of transitions pretty well into um, our, our big break 
So I'm talking about this as our migration to serverless. I'd want to talk right. more about that. So well, before before we jump into that, I just want to kind of ask this question about because um, again, the, I, I call those those fat. You know, some people call them fat lambdas. I call them lambda lists. I think there's lambda lists, then fat yeah. lambdas, then you know your sort of single purpose functions. But um, so it's interesting again moving towards that direction, and I think it's super important that you know just admitting that you're like we were definitely doing this wrong because I, <laughs> I think so many companies find that adopting serverless is very much so an evolution. And it's a learning thing where the teams have to figure out what works for them. And, and, and in some cases, discovering best practices on your own. So I think that's, um, you know, that you've gone through that process, um, I think is great. Um, so, uh, you know, so definitely kudos to you for that. Hi, everyone. I just want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, CBT Nuggets. If you're an IT professional or a developer like me, you know how important it is to constantly be learning new skills to keep up with the latest trends. Now, sometimes a blog post or a YouTube tutorial can get you started, but if you really want to upskill, nothing compares to professional training from experts you can trust. With CBT Nuggets, I have access to more than 400 courses and 4,000 hours of professional training, and with a 100% in-house training team, they add 40 hours of new training every week. Their courses feature topics ranging from building serverless apps with Lambda and DynamoDB to certification-focused training for AWS, Microsoft, Linux, and more. CBT Nuggets also offers virtual labs so that you can practice your new skills as you're learning them. And they have accountability coaching, which lets you talk to a real person to create a customized learning plan to set goals and keep you accountable. Whether you're a developer looking to sharpen your skills or a team looking to level up together, you can try CBT Nuggets for free for seven days thanks to their free trial offer. Just visit cbtnuggets.com serverless and sign up to get started. So before we get into the sort of that that adoption and the the migration or the evolution process that you kind of went through to get to, to where you are now, I mean, one other sort of business or technical case for serverless, especially with something as complex as banking, like I think, you know, I still don't understand why I can't transfer personal money or money from my my personal TD bank account to my wife's like, you know, local checking account, like why that's so hard to do. Um, but it seems like there's a lot of steps, like like mm. steps that have to work. Like you can't get halfway through five steps in some sort of transaction and then be like, oops, you know, we can't go any further. I mean, you have to roll that back and things like that. So I would imagine orchestration is a huge piece of this as well. Yeah, 100%. Uh, it, banking lends itself really well to these, these workflows, uh, I'll call them. Uh, so, so if you're thinking about even just the start of any banking process, there's this whole application process where you put in all your personal information, you, you send off a request to your bank, and then now there's this whole waterfall of things that needs to happen, all kinds of checks and, and making sure people aren't um, on any fraud lists or um, money laundering lists, or even just getting a second eye from our compliance department. And there's, so there's a lot of steps there, and even just keeping our own systems in sync right. with our auth provider and other places. So we definitely lean on um, using step functions a lot. I think they work really, really well for, for our use case. Um, and so, um, yeah, just, just the visual, being able to see this is where a customer is in their onboarding journey is very, very powerful and being able to sort of restart at any point of there, or, or even just giving our compliance team a view into that process or even adding, uh, like a, a pause portion. I think that that's one of the biggest right. uh, wins there is that 
we could process somebody through any one of our pipelines and there we may need a human eye there um, at least for this point in time and so that, that's one of the interesting things about um, the banking industry is that there are still manual processes behind the mm. scenes and there are um i find this term funny but there are wire rooms in in banks where there are people <laughs> reviewing things and, and and all that so there are a lot of uh, workflows that just lend themselves well to uh to step functions and yeah so um yeah that that pausing capability and being able to return later with a response right. so that allows you to build you know other internal applications for your compliance teams and other teams where it's just behind the scenes calls back and says okay resume this waterfall um yeah it's yeah i I think that was the the visualization especially in an events world when when you're talking about um like sagas i I guess it's like we're talking about distributed transactions here in a way where there's a lot of things happening and a common pattern now is the saga pattern or you you probably don't want to be doing two-phase commits and all this other stuff but we're looking at sagas as sort of like the orchestration you could do or, or the choreography. Um, and, and choreography gets very messy because there's a lot of implicit behavior. Uh, I'm a service and I know what I need to do when these events come through. And I need I know which compensating events I need to dump and, and all this other stuff. But right. now there's very limited view. Like if a developer is trying to gain context in, in a certain domain and understand the chain of events, it although you are decoupled, there's still this this extra coupling now of having to understand what's going on in your system um, and being able to share it with external stakeholders. So right. using step right. functions, that's that, I guess, the the serverless way of doing um, orchestration. Um, and so, uh, yeah, and, and just being able to share that view. So we, we had this, this process where we needed to move a lot of accounts to or or a lot of user data to a different system mm-hmm. and we were able to just use an orchestrator there as well just to keep an eye on everything that's going on um so you know we might be paused in migrating um let, let's say we're, we're moving over contacts uh a transaction list and one other thing you could visualize which one of those are in the red and which one we need to um come in and, and fix and also share that progress with external stakeholders. Um, yeah. And, and also it, it makes for fun launch parties, <laughs> I'd say <laughs> like when it's kind of funny because when developers do their job, you press a button and everything launches and there's not really anything to, to share right. or show. Uh, there's no like, but, uh, like balloons or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. But <laughs> it, it, it was kind of cool to, to look at these like, Oh, customers flowing through this branch of the logic yeah, and no, it's awesome. all green. And then, and then I think one of the coolest things was just the retryability as well. When somebody does fail um, or yeah, when, when, one of these workflows fails, you could see exactly which step, you can see the logs right. and all that. Um, I, I think the, the one of the challenges we ran into there though was because uh, we are working in the banking space, we're dealing with sensitive data. And right. something I, I almost wish AWS solved out of the box would be being able to obfuscate some of that data. And maybe you can't, uh, I'm not sure, but we have to think of patterns for tokenization, for instance. Mm-hmm. Stripe does this a lot where uh, certain parts of their platform, you just get it, you put in personal information, you get back a token and you use that reference everywhere. So right. we do tokenization as well as we limit the amount of details flowing through steps in our in our orchestrators. So we'll 
um, use an event store with identifiers flowing through, and we'll be doing reads back to that event store in between steps to to do what we need to do. Mm-hmm. So you you lose some of that debugability. You can't see exactly what information is flowing through, but we need to to keep user data right. you, safe. Well, because it's the it's the use case for it, right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, and I think I think that um, you know you mentioned a good point about sort of orchestration versus choreography, and I'm a big fan of choreography when it makes sense. But I think one of the the hardest lessons you learn when you start building distributed systems is knowing when to use choreography and knowing when to use orchestration. Um, and certainly in banking, orchestration is super important. And again, like with those saga patterns built in, that's the kind of thing where you can get to a point in the process, and you don't even need to do automated rollbacks. Like you can get to a failure your state and then from there that can be a pause and then you can essentially you know kick off uh, the the uh, unwinding of those things and do some of that so um and I love that idea of the, the token, uh, you know, token pattern and, and using, uh, you know, just rehydrating certain steps where you need to. And um, I think that makes a ton of sense. So, all right. So let's move on to the adoption and sort of the migration process, because I know um, I know this is something that really excites you and it should because it, it is cool. Like I always know as you're building out applications and you start to add more capabilities and more functionality and start really embracing um, uh, serverless as a methodology, then it, it can get really exciting. So um, so let's take a step back. You had. Uh, a champion in your organization that was sort of beating the drum, like, let's try this. This is going to make a lot of sense. Um, you build a uh, Apollo Lambda or a Lambda running Apollo server on it. Um, and you are sort of using that as like a strangler pattern, like routing all your stuff through now to your back end. So what, what happens, what happens next? Yeah. So we just, I would say when we needed to build new features, developers just gravitated towards using, uh, using serverless it was just easier um a we were using typescript instead of python which we just tend to like as an organization mm-hmm. and so it's just easier to to hop into to typescript land but i think um it was just easier to uh get something live and so now we had all these lambdas popping up uh, and doing their job but i think the, the the problem that happened was we weren't using them properly also there was a lot of difference between each of our serverless setups. And so we would learn each time and we'd be like, okay, we'll use this parser function here uh, to simplify some of it. Cause it is very bare bones if you're just pulling the serverless framework and it it took a little, yeah. So, so every, every service looked very different, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, And also we never really took the time to sit back and say, okay, how do we think about this? How do we use what serverless gives us? to enable us instead of it just being like an easy thing to spin up. I think that's where it started. It was just easy to start, Uh, but we didn't embrace it fully. And I remember having a conversation at some point with our VP being like, hey, how about we just uh, put Express into one of our Lambdas and we create this, this, uh, now I know it's a Lambda lift. I was like, (laughs) it would just be easier. Everybody knows how to use Express. Why don't we just do this? Why are we writing our own uh, parsers? For, for all these things. And uh, we have like 10 versions of a make response helper function that was right. copy, yeah. copy pasted between repos. And we didn't really have a good pattern for sharing that code yet in, in private packages. Um, so yeah, we, we realized that we liked serverless, but there was, we, we realized we needed to do it better. And so we started with having a serverless chapter reading between some of our team members and we made some moves there we we created a shared boilerplate at some point um so it sort of reduced some of the the differences you'd see between some of our repositories 
but it's still, we needed like a step change difference in, in our thinking mm-hmm. when I look back uh, and we sort of got lucky that that uh, opportunity came up. So, you know, at this point we probably had an, another six Lambda services, maybe more actually. Um, I want to say around, we'd probably have around 15 services at this point uh, without sort of a governing body around patterns. And so at this time, uh, we had this interesting opportunity where we we found out we're going to be replatforming. And so um, some like a big announcement we just made last month was that we we moved on to a new bank uh, bank partner um, called Bancorp. Mm-hmm. And so the, the bank partner that uh, that supports Chime and they're sort of like, I'll call them uh, an engine boost. We put in a much larger, uh, more efficient engine for our small businesses. If you just look at the capabilities they provide, uh, they're just absolutely amazing. It's what we need to to build forward. Their events APIs, amazing, as well as just their base banking capabilities, the, the unit economics they can offer, the times on their things were just better. So we found out we're doing an engine swap. And so the, uh, the people on the business side in our, in our company trusted our technical team to, to sort of do what we needed to do. Obviously we need to put together a case, but they trusted us to choose our technology, which was awesome. I think we just had a really good track record of delivering. And uh, so, so we sort of had free reign to decide what do we do, but the timeline was tight. And so uh, what we decided to do, this was COVID times too, is uh, a few of our developers got COVID tested and we, we rented a house and we did uh, a bubble situation, kind of how in the NHL <laughs> or NBA you have like a, a bubble. We had we had a death bubble. The all star uh, team. <laughs> the all star yeah. team, yeah. And so we decided, let's sit down, let's figure out what patterns are going to take us forward. How do we make the step change at the same time as, um, like step change in our um, technology stack at the same time as we're swapping out this. Uh, bank this this engine essentially for the business and so um, in this house we we watched almost every YouTube video you can imagine on event driven and serverless and I think leading up I think just knowing that we were going to be doing this I think all of us independently started prototyping and watching videos and right. yeah. um, reading a lot of your your content and Alex Debris and Anchui we, we all had a lot of ideas already going in and so when we all got to this house, we started off with this, this exercise, um, this event storming exercise, which is kind of popular in, in um, the domain driven design community, where we just threw down our entire business on a wall with sticky notes. And it would have been better to have every business stakeholder there. But luckily, we had two people from our product team there um, mm-hmm. as representatives. That's, that's how we're invested we were in, in building this, this outright, that we had products sitting in the room with us to, to figure it out. And so we, we slapped, slapped down our entire business on a wall. This took days and then, you know, drew circles around it and, and iterated on that for a while. And then started looking at what the technology looks like. What are our domain boundaries and what, what prototypes do we need to make? And so um, for a few weeks there, we were just prototyping. Um, we, we built out what I'd call baby's first balance. <laughs> that was the, the running joke <laughs> where how do we get an account opened? with a balance, with the transactions, minimally, um, with some new patterns. And so um, we really embraced some of this 
domain driven design thinking as well as just event driven thinking and so um, when we were rethinking our architecture three concepts became very important for us not entirely new but important so item potency was a big one uh, right. dealing with distributed transactions um, was uh, another one of those as well as eventual consistency and the eventual consistency portion is kind of funny because we were already doing it a lot like our transactions wouldn't always settle very quickly we just we didn't know about it but now our whole system um, becomes eventually consistent typically if you now divide all of your um, your architecture across domains and, right. and decouple everything and so um, yeah so we, we created some early prototypes we created our own version of, of an event store which is uh, I, would, I would just say an opinionated schema around DynamoDB mm-hmm. um, where we, we keep track of uh, revisions, uh, payload, timestamp, all the things you'd want to, to be able to do event sourcing. That's another thing we, we sort of decided on. Event sourcing seemed like the right approach for state for, for a lot of uh, our, our use cases. Uh, banking, I mean, if you just think about a banking ledger, it is event sourced or, or an accounting right. ledger. You're just right. adding up rows, add, subtract, add, subtract. And so, um, yeah, we, we created a lot of prototypes for these things. And so, yeah, uh, our event store pattern became uh, basically just a DynamoDB with um, opinions around the schema, as well as uh, a package, of a, a shared code package with a simple dispatch function, um, one dispatch function that really looks at... Um, enforcing uh, optimistic concurrency and one that's like a little bit more relaxed. Um, and then we also had some of our, uh, some reducer functions built into there. Right. Um, and, and um, that was, that was one of the, that was one of the packages that we created as well as another prototype um, around that was like, how do we create the actual subscriptions to this event store? And so we landed on SNS to SQS um, fan out. And it seems like fan out first is the serverless way of doing a lot of things. <laughs> um, and so we, we sort of learned that along the way and it makes sense. It was one of those things we read from a lot of these blogs and YouTube videos, and it really made sense in production when all the data is streaming from one place. And then now you just add subscribers all over the place, right. just new queues. And so fan out first, highly recommend. <laughs> we just kind of landed on there by following best practices. Um, right. So, okay. So you, you mentioned a, a bunch of different things in there, which is awesome. But so you, you, you get together in this house, you, you come up with all the events, you do this event storming session, um, which is always a great exercise, right? And so you, you, you get a pretty good visualization of how the business is going to run from an event standpoint. Um, so then you start building out this event-driven architecture. And you mentioned you know, some packages that you built. We talked about step functions um, and the orchestration piece of this. So, how did, so, so just give me a quick overview of the actual um, system itself. So you said it's backed by DynamoDB, but then mm-hmm. you have a bunch of packages that run in between there and then there's a whole bunch of queues and then you're using some uh custom packages i I think i already said that but you're using um uh, i use an event bridge in there like what what what's like what's some of the architecture behind all that yeah yeah really really good question so once we created these domain boundaries we needed to figure out how do we communicate between domains and within domains and we we landed on on really differentiating milestone events and domain events 
Um, and so I guess milestone events in other terms might be called integration events. But this idea that these are key business milestones, an account was open, an application was approved or rejected, things that every domain may need to know about. And then within our domains, our domain boundaries, we had these domain events, which might reduce to a milestone event. And we can maintain those contracts in the future and change those up. So we needed, we needed to think about how do we message all these things across? Like, how do we communicate? And so we landed on event bridge for our milestone events. So we have one, one event bus for um, that we talk to all of our between domain boundaries, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have, uh, and, and so, yeah, so event bridge there. And then each of our services now subscribe to that event bridge uh, and maintain their own event store. And so that's backed by DynamoDB. So each of our services have their own data store. Uh, it's usually an event stream or a projection database, but it's almost all Dynamo, which is, interested, which is interesting because our old platform used Postgres and we did have relational data. So it, it was interesting. I, I was really scared at first, like how are we going to maintain relations and things? And um, it became a non-issue. I, I don't even know why <laughs> now, that I, now that I think about it. Just like every service maintains its nice projection through events and right. builds its own view of the world, which brings its own problems. And so we have, yeah, DynamoDB in there and then SNS to SQS fan out. And then when we're talking about packages- That's off the, stream, just, that's off the streams? Exactly, yeah. So yeah. Uh, we're Dynamo streams to SNS to SQS. And then uh, we, we use shared code packages to make those subscriptions very easy. So if you're looking at doing that SNS to SQS fan out or just creating SQS queues, there is a lot of CloudFormation boilerplate that we mm. are creating. And we need to move really quick on this project. So we got pretty opinionated quick and we created our own um, subscription function that just generates all this cloud formation with naming conventions, which was nice. I think the opinions were good because early on we weren't opinion enough, I would say. And when you look in your AWS dashboard, the resources aren't prefixed correctly and there's all this garbage. So we were able to yeah. have consistent naming throughout, make it really easy to subscribe to an event. And so we, we would publish packages to, to help with certain things. So our event store package was one of those. We also created a, a Lambda handlers package, which leverages, there's like a Lambda middlewares um, compose package out there, mm -hmm. which is which is quite nice. And we basically, all, all the common functionality we're doing a lot of, like parsing a body from you know, S3 or SQS or right. um, API gateway, that's just a middleware that we now publish. Um, validation in and out. We highly recommend the library Zod. We really embraced it. TypeScript first, mm -hmm. um, you know, object validation, really, really cool package. And so we created all these middlewares now, um, event subscription packages. So we have like a lot of shared code in these, in this internal NPM repository that we install across. And I think one challenge we had there was eventually you're abstracted away too much from the cloud formation. And it's hard for new developers to, it's, it's easy for them to create uh, event subscriptions. It's hard for them to evolve our serverless thinking because they're so far removed from it. Uh, I still think it was the right call in the end. I think this is the next step of the journey is, is right, figuring right. out how do we share code effectively while not hiding away too much of, of serverless, especially because it's changing so fast. Yeah, um, yeah. 
Yeah. But it's also and, it's also interesting though that you take that approach to hide some of that complexity and bake in some of that boilerplate that someone's most likely going to have to write themselves anyways and like you said the copying pasting between services is not the best way to do it. I tried the whole shared packages thing one time um and uh it kind of worked. It's just like when you make a small change to that package and you have like 14 services that then you have to update to get the newest version. Yeah. Sometimes that's a little frustrating. <laughs> Lambda layers haven't been a huge help with some of that stuff either, but um but anyways, I, I it's interesting cuz again you you know you've mentioned this a number of times Times, um, about using cues, um, and you mm-hmm. did mention resiliency uh, in there, but I want to touch on that point a little bit because that's one of those things too where I would assume in a banking platform, um, you do not want to lose events, right? You don't want to mm-hmm. lose things. And so if something breaks or something gets throttled or whatever, um, having to go and um, and retry those events, um, you know, having having the you know alerts in place to know that a queue is backed up or whatever. Um, and then just, I mean, I'm thinking ordering issues and um you know things like that like what like what kinds of issues did you face and, and tell me a little bit more about what you've done for reliability yeah totally so yeah queues are definitely like sqs is a work workhorse for our company right now we use a lot of it and um i think we do like just dropping messages is one of the scariest things so <laughs> you're dead on there <laughs> when we were moving to event driven that was what scared me the most like what if we drop an event mm-hmm. and uh like a, a good example of that is if you're using event bridge and you're subscribing lambdas to it uh, i was under the impression early on that that event bridge retries forever um but I, i'm pretty sure it'll retry until it invokes twice i think that's what we landed on and so an oh, example okay. I, I think so uh, and so don't don't quote me on this but we we had to that was like an example of where a drop message could be a problem and we put a queue in front of there, an SQS queue as the subscription there. So that way, if there's any failure to deliver there, it's just going to retry um, like all the time for n number of days. Right. And so at that point, we got to think about DLQs, and that's something we're still sort of thinking about. Um, but yeah, I think like the the reason we've been using queues everywhere is that now queues are in charge of all all your retryability. So now that we've decomposed these lambdas into, you know, like one lambda lift into five lambdas um with queues in between if anything fails in there it just pops back into the queue and it'll retry um sort of indefinitely um but yeah it it, you can drop messages after a few days and that's something we learned luckily in the prototyping stage where there there are a few places where we use dead letter queues um but one of the issues there as well was ordering um so Ordering didn't play too well with, uh, <laughs> with the not dead with, letter. Not with DLQs. No, it does not. Yeah. No. And so I think that's like one lesson I'd want to share is that only use ordering when you absolutely need it. So mm-hmm. we found ways to design some of our architecture where we didn't need ordering. Like there's places we were using FIFO SQS, which was something that sort of just launched when we were building this thing. So when mm-hmm. we were thinking about messaging, we we're like, oh, well, we can't use SQS because they don't respect ordering or doesn't respect <laughs> ordering. And then bam, like the next day we see this blog article. And so we we got really hyped on that and, and used FIFO everywhere and then realized it's, it's unnecessary in most use cases. So when we were going live, we actually... Uh, change those FIFO queues into just regular SQS queues isn't in as many places as we can. Um, and then so in that use case, you could really easily attach a dead letter queue and you don't have to worry about anything. But with FIFO, uh, things things get really, really gnarly. And so, yeah, um, ordering 
is an interesting one. Uh, another place we got burned, I think, on on dead letter queues or, or tough thing to do with dead letter queues is when we were using uh, our state machines, we needed to limit the concurrency of of our state machines. Is another wish list item in AWS. I wish there was just a at the top of the file like a limit concurrent executions of your mm. of your state machine, and, and maybe it exists, and maybe we just didn't. Um, learn to use it properly, but we needed to, um, there, there's a few patterns out there. Like I've seen the semaphore pattern where you can um, use the actual state machine flow to look back at how many concurrent executions you have and, and sort of pause. Mm-hmm. We landed on setting reserved concurrency in a number of lambdas and, and throwing errors um, if, if we've hit the, the max concurrency and it'll sort of pause that lambda. But the problem with DLQs there was these are all errors. So they're coming back as errors. We're like, we're fine with them. This is a, a throttle error. That's fine. Um, but it's hard to distinguish that from a poison message in your queue. And so when do you dump those into DLQ? So if it's just uh, a throttling thing, I, I don't think it, it matters to us. And so that was like another challenge we had. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're still figuring out dead letter queues and um, alerting. I think for now, uh, we just relied on CloudWatch alarms a lot for for our alerting, um, yeah. and there's a lot you could do. So even just in, in the state machines, you could get pretty granular there and know um, when certain things fail and and sort of announce to your Slack yeah. channel. So we, we use that Slack integration. It's pretty easy. You just go on a Slack channel. There's an email in there. You, you plop it into the console in AWS, and and you're kind of you have your very early alerting. Like right. mechanism there, right? Yeah, yeah. So and, and so the thing with Elasticsearch, uh, not Elasticsearch. I'm sorry, I'm totally off topic here. Uh, so the thing with EventBridge and Lambda, like these are one of those things that again, they're they're nuances, but. EventBridge, as long as it can deliver to the Lambda service, then the Lambda service kicks off and queues it automatically. And then that will retry at a certain number of times. I think you can control that now. Um, But then eventually, if that retries multiple times and eventually fails, then that kicks it over to the DLQ or whatever. So yeah, there's all different ways that it it works um, like that. But but that's why I always like the idea of putting a queue in between there as well, because I felt like you just had a little bit more control over exactly what happens. Like as long as it gets to the to the queue then you know you haven't lost the message or you hope you haven't lost the message hi everyone i want to take a minute to thank our sponsor lumigo we've talked a lot about observability on this podcast and if you've listened to any of those episodes then you know that it can be difficult to achieve serverless observability with traditional approaches now though serverless comes with many opportunities and advantages it also has some unique issues that some tools just aren't able to address and those issues really need something meant for serverless environments now that's where lumigo comes in as a serverless first monitoring platform lumigo lets developers quickly and easily find and fix errors and performance issues, while also giving you an end-to-end view of the entire transaction across services and functions. All of the debugging information you need is conveniently in one place, and you're able to set up alerts so that you know what's happening and how it might affect the user experience. Lumigo also knows how to play nice with your existing tool chain, enabling you to send alerts to email, Slack, Microsoft Teams, Ops Genie, and more, and can also create tickets in Jira straight from the issues page. 
Thanks to their automatic distributed tracing, it only takes four clicks to set up Lumigo with no manual code changes necessary. Lumigo already has a free plan that lets you track up to 150,000 AWS Lambda invocations a month, but today they're offering Serverless Chats listeners a special promotion. Sign up for a free account at Lumigo.io and enter promo code CHATS500 and your free account limit will go up to half a million monthly invocations. That's Lumigo.io with promo code CHATS500 to try it out today. Let's move on a little bit about the adoption issues. You mentioned a few of these things, obviously issues with you know concurrency and and ordering and and some of that other stuff. Um, what about some of the other um, you know sort of challenges you had? You mentioned this you know this idea of writing all these packages and it kind of pulls devs away from the cloud formation a little bit. Um, I do like that in that it I think it accelerates a lot of things, but um, you know what are some of the other maybe challenges that you've been having? Just getting yeah. this thing up and running. Yeah, so I would say IAM is, is an interesting one. So mm. because we are in the banking space, you want to be very careful about what access do you give to um, what machines or developers. I think machines right. are important too. Um, and so there, there have been cases where, so we do have a separate um, developer set up with, with their own permissions. And so in development, it's really easy to spin up all your services within reason but now when we're going into production there's times where our ci doesn't have the permissions to delete a queue or create a queue or or certain things and there's like a yeah. lot of tweaking you have to do there and you got to do a lot of thinking about your iam policies uh, as an organization uh, especially because now every developer is touching infrastructure so that becomes sort of this right. shared operational overhead that that serverless did introduce and so we're still figuring that out so Right now, it's we're, we're functioning on least privilege, so um, it's better to just not be able to deploy than deploy something you shouldn't or read right, logs right. that you shouldn't, and and that's where we're starting. But that that's something that will will be a challenge for a little while, I think. Um, and and there's all kinds of interesting things out there. Like I think temporary IAM permissions is a really cool one. So there are times we're in production and we need to view certain logs or right. or you know, be able to access a certain queue. And there are, there's tooling out there where you can, or at least so I've heard, you can uh, give temporary permissions. You have this queue permission for 30 minutes and it expires and it's audited. And I think there's like some some cloud trail tie-in you could do there. And I'm just, I'm speaking about the my wish list for our, our next evolution <laughs> here. So um, I hope oh, my team, team listening. Your team's listening will, to you, yeah. Um, will be inspired well, as well. Right. So what about, because um, this is something too that I always found to be a challenge, especially when you start having multiple services and you've talked about, you know, these domain events, but then milestone events. So you've got, you've got different services that need to uh, communicate across services or across domains and, and, and realize certain things like that. And so service discovery in and of itself and like, you know, which, which queue are we mapping to or which mm -hmm. service am I talking to and which version of the service am I talking to things like that? That's uh. Uh, how, how have you been dealing with that stuff? <laughs> Not well, uh, I would say like very, very ad hoc. Uh, I, I think like right now, at least we have tight communication between the teams. So we roughly mm -hmm. know which service we need to talk to and right, right. we output our, our URLs in the cloud formation output. So at least you could reference the URLs across services a little easier. Well, really uh, GraphQL is like one of the only service that really, um, 
talks to a lot of our API gateways. Um, so at least there's like less of that, like knowing which endpoint to hit. Um, most of our services will will read into EventBridge and then within services, um, a lot of that's abstracted away. Like the, the queue subscription is a little easier. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, service discovery is, is a bit of a nightmare. Like once, <laughs> once our services grow, uh, it'll be, a, a, I don't know, it'll be a huge challenge to, to understand like even which versions, uh, which, which uh, services are using older versions of Node, for instance. Right. Um, I saw that AWS is now deprecating version 10 and uh, that yep. we'll, we'll have to take a look at internally, like are we using version 10 anywhere and how do we make sure that's fine? Or even um, things like just knowing which, which services now have um, vulnerabilities in their NPM packages because we're using Node and that, that's another thing. And I don't even know if that falls in service discovery, but it's, it's sort of in this overhead Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just service management too. I mean, it's a, it's a huge, uh, is a lot there. And that actually maybe brings me to this idea of, of observability too. So you mentioned, you know, doing some cloud watch alerts and some of that stuff, but what about like using some sort of observability tool or tracing like x-ray and things like that? Have you, uh, have you been implementing any of that? And if you have, have you had any, uh, success and or problems with it? Yeah, I wish we, we had a better view of some of the observability tools. Uh, I think we we're just b- building so quickly that we never really invested the time into trying them out. So we did mm. use X-ray, and so we sort of rolled our own um, own tooling internally to at least do what we know. Um, so X-ray was one of those. But the pro- problem with X-ray is we do subscribe all of our services, but it's not X-ray isn't implemented everywhere um, internally in AWS. So we lose our trail somewhere in that. Um, Dynamo stream to SNS or SQS. So it's not a full trace. Also, just digesting that huge graph of information is just very difficult. Uh, I don't use it often. I think it's a really cool graphic to show like, hey, look how many services are running and (laughs) it's going so fast. Like it's a really cool thing to look at, but it hasn't been very useful. And so I think our our most useful tool for debugging and and observability has been just our logging. So we created a a JSON logger package and we've been, so we could have JSON logs and we could actually filter off of different properties and we ship those to Elasticsearch. So now you can have a view of all all of the functions within a given domain um, at any point in time. And so you could really see this story. I think early on, when we were opening up CloudWatch and you'd have like 10 tabs and you're right. trying to understand this flow of information, it was very difficult. And so we also implemented our own uh, trace ID pattern. And I think we just followed a Lumigo article where, where we introduced some some properties and in each right. of our Lambda sort of at a higher level in one of our middlewares and we're able to trace through. It's not ideal. Um, observability is something that we'll probably have to work on next. Um, it's It's been tolerable for now but i can't see the scaling that right. long yeah you know we well did. that's the other thing too is even like the the shared package issue it's like when you have an observability tool like you know they'll just install a layer or, or something you where you don't necessarily have to worry about updating your own tool and um and i always find if you're embracing serverless and you want to get rid of all that undifferentiated heavy lifting um observability tools there's a lot of really good ones out there that are doing some great stuff um and they're specializing in it so it's sort of like it might be worth letting someone else handle that for you than trying to do it yourself internally 
Yeah, 100%. I mean, do you have any that you've used that are particularly good? I, I, yeah, I know you I work mean, for I've, I've played so. around. <laughs> I've played around with all of them, um, you know, because I've, uh, you know, I've, I, I just, I love this stuff. So it, it's mm -hmm. always fun. But I mean, obviously, Lumigo and Epsigon and Thundra and New Relic, I mean, they're, they're all great. Um, they all do, you know, things slightly differently, but they all kind of, you know, follow a, a similar implementation pattern so that it's, it's very easy to install them. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, we can we can talk more about some uh, some recommendations. But uh, but yeah, no, I think uh, I think it's just one of those things where in a modern application, not having that insight is really hard. Um, you know, it, 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 it can be really hard to debug stuff. Um, if you look at, um, uh, you know, some of the tools that AWS offers, I think they're there. It's just they're maybe a little harder to implement and not quite as refined uh, and sort of targeted as some of the as the observability tools. But um, but still, you know, I mean, you, you got to get there, right? It's it's a like again. That's why I keep saying it's an, an evolution. It's a process. Once you you know maybe one time you get burned and you're like we really needed to have observability. Then you know then that's when it becomes more of a priority when you're when you're moving fast like you are. Yeah, one hundred percent. I think this has got to be a priority earlier than later. So I, I think I'll do some reading now. Now that you've you've dropped some of these these options, I, I have seen them floating around. But right. it's one of those things that. When it's too late, it's too late. <laughs> it's never it's never too late to add observability though. So it should that, that it actually true. a lot of them now, I mean again, it makes it really, really easy. So I'm not I'm not trying to pitch any particular sure. company, but like take a look at some of them that they because they, they are really great. But um so just one you know, one other challenge that I, I also find a lot of people run into, um, especially with serverless, because there's all these sort of artificial account limits in place um mm -hmm. you know even like the number of queues you can create and and uh the number of concurrent lambda functions in a particular region and stuff like that um have you run into any of those account limit issues yeah yeah <laughs> uh, i could give you the easiest way to run into an account limit issue and that is replay your entire event bridge archive to every <laughs> subscriber and you will find a bottleneck somewhere right. somewhere so it'll, it'll fall over Nice. 100%. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a good way to do some some quick check and in, in development to see where you might need to buffer something. But uh, we have run into that. And, and I think like um, the, the solution there in a lot of places was just really playing with concurrency where we needed to and being thoughtful about, um, sorry, like con reserving concurrency in, in places that we absolutely needed to, you know, stay right. functioning and i think the yeah. challenge there is that eats into your total account um right. concurrency which was an interesting learning there um, yeah so um but uh but yeah definitely like playing around there and just being thoughtful about where you are replaying so a couple a couple of things we so we use replays a lot so because we are using this these milestone events between service boundaries now when you launch a new service you want to replay that whole history right, all right. the way through and so we we've done a lot of replaying and that was one of the really cool things about eventbridge it just was so easy you just you know set up an archive and it'll yep. record yep. everything coming through and then you just you know just press a button in the console and it'll replay all of them so yeah. that was that was really awesome um, but just yeah, being very mindful of where you're replaying to. So if you replay to all of your subscriptions, you will right. hit um, you'll hit lambda concurrency limits real quick. Um, and even just like another case, uh, early on we need to replay. So we have our own domain event store, and so yeah. we want to 
um, replay some of those events. And those are coming off the Dynamo stream. And so we were using Dynamo to kick those to a stream to SNS to, and fan out to all of our SQS queues. But there would only be like one or two queues we actually needed to subscribe to those events. So we created an internal utility just to dump those events directly into the SQS queue oh, nice. we needed. So yeah. I think it's just about not being wasteful with mm. your resources because they are cheap. <laughs> Sure, right. uh, but, but if you use them, they start to cost money. So that's yeah, they, they start to co- to cost money as well as they could lock down, like they could lock you out of other functionality. So right. if you hit your lambda limits, now our API gateway is down, <laughs> and so yeah, right, that's a good point. Yep. Yeah, Absolutely. and so you could take down your whole system if you just aren't mindful about. Those, those limits and now you could call up aws in a panic and and be like hey can you update our limits luckily we haven't had to do that yet but uh, it, it's definitely something in your back pocket if you need it right. you can make the case to aws that maybe you do need bigger limits than the default um but yeah i think just not being wasteful being mindful of where you're replaying and um and, and i think another interesting thing there is dealing with partners too so it's Mm. really easy to scale in the lambda world but not every partner could handle that kind of volume really quickly right so if you're you're not buffering any event coming through eventbridge to your um to your new service that hits a partner every time uh, you're gonna hit their api rate limit really quickly because they're just gonna like just go right through so you might be doing thousands of api calls when you're instantiating a new service and so that that's one of those interesting things that we had to deal with and particularly in our orchestrators because they are talking to different partners that's why we need to really make sure we could limit the concurrent executions of the state machines themselves yeah, uh, yeah. and so um yeah so in a way some of our architecture is too fast to scale um <laughs> you still have to consider downstream and that and even just if you are using relational databases or, or anything else in your system now you have to worry about connection limits and and um i have a whole talk i give traffic. on that yes absolutely oh, really cool. <laughs> i know i know all about it um so is there any uh so any final advice for companies like you that are that are trying to bite off the uh Bite off a piece of the serverless apple, I guess. That's really bad um, saying. But anyways, like any, like any, uh, any advice for for people looking to get into this? Yeah, totally. I would say start small. I think mm. we were wise to just try it out. It, it might not land with your development team if if you don't really buy in. It's one of those things that could just end up unnecessarily messy. So, right. so start small, see if you like it, inch up and then reevaluate once you hit a certain point. That, and I would say shared boilerplate packages sooner than later. I know like shared code is a problem, but it is nice to have a, an opinionated starter pack yeah. that you're at least not doing anything really crazy. Um, yeah, and and I th- just even just things like having opinions around logging, like in our industry, it's really important you're not logging sensitive details. So right. for us, doing things like wrapping uh, our HTTP clients to make sure we're not logging sensitive details or having shared Lambda packages that make sure out of the box, you're opinionated about not doing something terribly awful. Right. And so, yeah, I, I would say those two things, start small and uh, boiler package. And maybe the third thing is just as, uh, just pay attention to the code smell of a growing Lambda. If, if yeah. you are 
doing three API calls in one Lambda, chances are you could probably break that up and think about it in, in a more resilient way. If any one of those pieces fail, now you could have retriability in each one of those. And um, yeah, so yeah, th those are those are the three things I would say. I, and I could probably talk forever about <laughs> the rest of our journey. Well, that was, uh, I, I think that was great advice. And I, I love I love hearing about how companies are are going through this process, what that process looks like, and I I hope I hope I hope that companies listen to this and can skip a lot of these mistakes. I think it's um you know, and I don't want to call them all mistakes, and I think it's just evolution, right? Like the the stuff that you've done, we've all made them, we've all gone through that process, um, and it, the more the more we can sort of solidify these practices and stuff like that, um, I think that uh, you know more companies will benefit from uh, for from hearing stories like these. So thank you very much for for sharing that. So again, you know. Thank you so much for for spending the time to do this and sharing all of this knowledge and, and this journey that you've been on and are continuing to be on. It would be great to continue to get updates from you. Um, so if people want to contact you, I know you're not on Twitter, but is uh, what's the best way to sort of reach out to you? Yeah, I almost, I almost wish I had a Twitter. It's the developer <laughs> thing to have, so maybe in the future. But yeah, just on LinkedIn would be great. And um yeah, LinkedIn would be great, as well as if anybody's interested in working with our team and just figuring out how to take serverless to the next level, just hit me up on LinkedIn or look at our careers page at northone.com, awesome. and I could give you a warm intro. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, so just your last name is spelled S-T-R-Z-E-L-E-C. How do you say that again? Because I know yeah, I so... say it in Polish, because I know I said it wrong in the beginning. Yeah, so so I guess for most people, it'd just be Strzelek. But if if you, if there are any Slavs in the audience, it's Strzelets. Very intense four consonant last yeah. name. That is a but... lot of consonants. Um, so anyways, again, Patrick, thanks again. This was great. Yeah, thank you so much, Jeremy. This has been awesome. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Patrick Strzelek for being my guest this week and to our sponsors, CBT Nuggets and Lamigo. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 105. For more serverless chat, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.